The incarnation is absolutely central to the story. If we don't have one in, who comes in the flesh, who is without sin, then we remain under sin and under the curse of death. So this is a very important uh, account, a very important story for us. But there are many who do not receive him. They did not receive him at his first coming, and they still do not receive him. Therefore, it's the church's mission from young to old, from the youngest to the oldest, to explain our need and speak of the good news of great joy of a Savior come to deliver us from death. We know he's come, and we are certain that he is coming again. And we don't want people to reject him, to be surprised at his coming. We prepare for such things. Many of you probably put this on your calendar. Well, I judge by the fact that you're visiting here this morning. You put it on your calendar and said, I got to be there for the Christmas program. But there are things that we don't have uh, marked on our calendar, but we are certain of their occurrence, and that is Christ's return. Therefore, we must be ready. We must be prepared for his return. And his call to us is clear, and it must be obeyed. It comes through the messenger who appears before him, namely John the Baptist. Listen then to the account of his proclamation there in Matthew chapter 3. We read then in the very word of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Matthew's focus, each gospel has a a bit of a different focus. Matthew's focus is that Jesus is the son of David, the one who is spoken of, prophesied about, who is to receive the throne of his father David, and he would reign upon that throne forever. We see that in the opening of Matthew's gospel as he lays out the genealogy there of of the Lord Jesus, declaring that he is the one who is the son of David, carries it right through to his being born of Mary and Joseph. It's fitting that Jew and Gentile would come to sing praises to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the Lord of all. Matthew 1 shows that Jesus deserves royal honor as the one who's the son of David, and 
Matthew 2 shows that he receives it, not just from the Jews, but also from Gentiles, from those influential men from the East who came to worship him. And right out of the gate, Matthew shows us that there are two responses to the presence of Christ. There's hostility versus receptivity. There are those who were hostile towards him. There were those who were receptive to him, Herod being the hostile and the wise men being those who were receptive, seeking him. Matthew shows that though man sought to stand against this occurrence from happening, that God exercised control over all the events, sparing his son, bringing his son through all of these turns of events from their flight to Egypt to their return to Nazareth after Herod's death. We see all of this as God is uh, uh, fulfilling the Old Testament. Psalm 2 says that the, the nations rage, the, the kingdoms or the kings plot, and they plot in vain, for the Lord will establish his king, but not before he does what he has come to do. And here we see how we are to receive him and how we're to live in readiness for, for his coming. The people of God, it's the beginning of his public ministry that we consider this morning. There in chapter 3, Matthew jumps from Jesus' arrival in Nazareth up to the time just before his public ministry, probably around the age of 30. He is preparing to uh, proclaim his message, and it's fitting that a king would have a herald to go before him. John the Baptist goes before him and announces his coming, and he says, get ready, for the king is here. And what does he say about uh, that king? Well, he's going to announce that in just a few moments, but children, we have a, a weak picture of that today. We don't have royalty in our country. The closest thing I could think of was when the Sergeant-at-Arms announces the President of the United States before his State of the Union address in the the chambers of the House of Representatives, and people are applauding and probably hoping it doesn't go too long or that it says something that they want to be supportive of and so on. And so it is in the world today. When Jesus is announced, people say, well, what's this going to be about? And, And do we really have to listen to this? And is really anything going to change? Well, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything changes the promises of God are set before our eyes in the, the child of Joseph and Mary and the one who becomes that one who is from Nazareth coming out of the wilderness to proclaim this good news of great joy. There is not applause at his first coming. The angel announces his coming. The shepherds go to see, but... The ruling authorities, at least the majority of them, and the people of stature reject him or ignore him. But John has the call of a prophet. He goes before him announcing the way. It's rather interesting that he gets all of this description about him. How many people are described in the Bible by what they wear? You think about that, the, the 12 apostles, uh, what, what do we know of what they wore? We can surmise what they wore because we know what the, uh, we, we, we've, discovered something of, the, of what they wore and we knew what fishermen did in those days, but we don't get a big description about what they're wearing. But here with John, we get this statement that he came wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. 
and his food was locusts and wild honey. Why that, why that description? Why does Matthew put that in? Because he's acknowledging that John is coming in that role of a prophet. He is pointing back to the description that we have of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. There he comes with his garment of camel's hair and his leather belt looking rather rough, rather uh, unkempt, we might say. He comes to prepare the way for God's Messiah, fulfilling that role as prophet. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew acknowledges that too. In his third verse there, he says, the voice of what Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah chapter 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John comes with the look of the prophet and with the message of the prophet, calling to repent. Remember what Elijah did. He told Ahab that he was the one that was the troubler of Israel. He was the one that was causing the people to be led astray. He was the one who was not right with the Lord. Elijah arrived suddenly on the scene. John arrives suddenly on the scene, filled with the spirit and power of Elijah. We read that he might give a message that would turn hearts to the Lord. The call of the prophet was to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. God poured out his spirit upon his people. We see in Acts chapter 2 that he pours out his spirit upon his people that we too might be those prophets, those proclaimers who speak of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, preparing the people to come. How do we do that? Well, we teach near at home. We teach our children as they sing the songs that speak of uh, the prophecy of Christ's coming. They read the texts that speak of the prophecy of Christ's coming, the gospel accounts of his coming and what it means We teach those around us in this season what it's all about. God has called us to that, and living in readiness for Christ's return means to live as witnesses to him and his message, living like a prophet. Well, secondly, this morning when we ask ourselves, when did John preach? We want to understand the times. We need to live in readiness for the king because we're in those times as the times of John. In those same times, in those days, a very indefinite marker Matthew gives, but we know as Matthew continues on what was going on, what was happening in those days. Spiritual climate was very poor, much like our own. There were those who resisted John's call, who rejected him, who thought him to be maniacal, some sort of a crazed man speaking of this king who is to come, though there's no chariot, there's no army, there's no palace in which he comes. Well, do you feel like that today when you speak of the Lord Jesus Christ? People say, well, you're a little crazy. There's nothing happening. Things are as they've always been. Things go on as they've always gone on. And yet, we know with certainty that as Christ has come, he's coming again. These days in which we live are like those days in which John proclaimed. And there were those who did hear. There were those who came and listened. There were those who came from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan coming to him to be baptized. Therefore, we proclaim the word that 
people might come and confess their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand the times, brothers and sisters. Understand that you must confidently and courageously speak of Jesus' return. There will be those who do not receive the message, but there will be those who are prepared of the Lord to hear that word. How do they come to faith? By hearing, by hearing the word preached. Take time to speak of the word of God in your homes. The fact that resistance to the gospel is present is a reminder of how important it is that we speak the truth in our homes. The fact that there is such a push against the truth is all the more reason that we should proclaim the truth clearly in our homes to, our, to one another, to our children. Paul says it this way, the days are evil, therefore make the best use of the time that you have. Show your children, parents, how to walk as wise people, ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Careful as to what they look at, what they listen to, how they speak, to consider their hearts. Are they ready? Are they confessing their sin? Do they acknowledge their need of a Savior? Talk about events that take place at school. Teach what obedience to God looks like. Talk about what is happening in our country. Fathers, mothers, teach biblical morality and love in the face of moral decay. And children, talk to your parents. Ask them about what is right and what is wrong and where authority is to be found. We talked about that last week. Be careful of what authority you have. It's not TikTok. It's the Scriptures. In those days, John came preaching. In those days. What kind of days were they? Well, they were dark days, as Isaiah prophesies. In those days, when the people walked in darkness, they saw a great light. Who was that great light? The Lord Jesus Christ. That is the one that was pointed to, the one to whom this prophecy pointed, to the light of God's uh, word fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a nation walking in darkness, and we need to look to the light, to the Lord Jesus Christ. People today are not satisfied with God's Word. They're not satisfied with gospel preaching. There are those who go to churches wanting simply to feel good and to be entertained. But what must the church be? What must the minister do. He must be the prophet. He must proclaim that we are ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the message then is to repent and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. What must the church be? Faithful and let the results be what they will be. Not advocating for churches that keep quote-unquote healthy numbers by browbeating and belittling the congregation. But saying this, that the pastor must be about, the church must be about proclaiming the whole counsel of God. All of it. Proclamation of sin must be set forth that the beauty of the gospel might shine forth. The church, the pastor must preach the true condition of man such that we can say, you know, salvation really is amazing. That God would save someone like me. That God would save sinners, though he is holy and lifted up. 
It is truly amazing. The one who doesn't think so, doesn't understand need of God, doesn't understand grace in its fullest depth. John was preaching in dark days, acting as a New Testament Elijah, and that could be a lonely existence. Remember how Elijah stood. He stood against 450 prophets of Baal. How do you get 450 prophets of Baal? Well, you have a society that also supports those 450 prophets of Baal so they can be the prophets of Baal. That's the culture. That's what's being supported. That's what's being fed. And there is Elijah standing alone saying, Come to the one true God. You are not alone. For God will protect you. John's not seeking popularity. Just like Elijah wasn't seeking popularity, John's not seeking popularity with his message. He had to confront the people and the religious leaders of his day who exhibited idolatry and faulty theology and were living opposed to God. What words of God were necessary in that day? Repent. Turn from your wickedness. Be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole counsel of God. That declaration doesn't mean that we're against others. It means that we're for them. We clarify that all of history is moving toward that event of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if ready, it is a joyous thought. If not, it is a devastating future. Are you ready? I don't know if you fly much. I don't, but I've flown enough to know this. That when the steward or stewardess stands up and takes out the little oxygen thingy and tells you that your flotation device can be used in case of water uh, landing, most people are doing everything but listening. They're trying to see if their stuff fits in the overhead bin or, or if it goes under the chair they want to take all their stuff with them and make sure that, it's, that it doesn't get forgotten or that they, can, that they can be comfortable. And there in the front of the cabin is the person declaring, what if emergency occurs? What then? And people don't listen. Well, the religious leaders of John's day weren't ready. They refused his call to repentance. They trusted in their practice and in their lineage for salvation. Abraham was their father and law works their badge to glory. But they were far from God and John proclaimed, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God is the one who brings to life. It is not lineage that reveals life. He says this, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He's going to the very heart of the matter. He says the axe is laid at the root. I'm not messing with the, with the, the leaves and the, and the branches. I'm going right to the root here when I say this. He comes announcing that God is concerned for the heart. The call to all people, including the religious, is to repent and to turn from self-righteousness, to plead for God's forgiveness, 
It's not a natural position of the heart. We lean toward self-praise, religious and non-religious alike. The Pharisees were not humble before God. They exalted themselves as models of virtue whom God honored. They were, as they said, not like other men. It's not just the religious who can have a self-righteousness. The irreligious, those who resist Religious practice also want to be thought of as righteous or as good in the eyes of others. Though they condemn organized religion as they call it, they want to be thought of as good. They come to us, such examples come to us in the form of virtue signaling today. You know how that is. People identify with a particular cause or particular group and they say, but, but I support these oppressed or I support this cause and, and I'm for these or for those people wanting to identify to show their goodness in living. Why this posturing and preening in the heart of man? Because we all know that we're sinful and it's the reflex of the human heart to want to be accepted because God has made us for himself. That we might live in fellowship with him forever. However, sin has twisted the heart so that in the fallen state, we say, if God, God, if he exists, must accept me for who I am and he must agree with me about my goodness. He must agree with me about my cause. Not, thus says the Lord, that's irrelevant. This is what I have set my heart upon. This is the, the position, the group, the, the particular thing that I support and God must see that as good because I declare it as such. God says we have sinned and fallen short of the glory He has intended for for us. We naturally pursue self-glorification rather than humbly ask God to rescue us from our fall and to restore us to glory. That's the message that these days The axe blow of judgment is ready to fall upon everyone who seeks to live apart from God. No one can presume salvation from goodness. John's message to the most religious was not just a bit more law-keeping and you'll get in. His message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ came not to supplement the goodness of man so he could be saved. He came as the righteousness of God offered to hopeless sinners. You remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, one of the, uh, of the sect of the Pharisees, and he's talking to Jesus, and, and Jesus says to him, you are a teacher of Israel, and in the Old Testament it speaks of the need of, of new birth, of, 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 of the Lord's work, of God's work, and you do not know these things? You can't see that in the Old Testament? You don't see that there? He shakes Nicodemus to the core, pointing him away from himself to look for new life in God and to new life in his provision. You must be born again. New life is evident then where there's daily conversion and repentance of sin and amazement at the grace of God to save. There's a change that's needed. 
And that change is a daily turning from sin to God. All need to be filled with the Spirit of God to be born again in the, to life in the coming kingdom. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the one that you need. This is the one that we need and the one that has come. And those who are united to him then are those who bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Living for the Lord in newness of life. Ready for Christ's return. Refusing to compromise with what God says is wrong. Having a heart of compassion for those who are wrestling with their sin. Having a passion for truth that pushes past worrying about what others might think of them for standing for the truth. Having a passion that's driven by the love, by a love for God. To see God's love leads us to want to share it with others. The love of Christ for God and for others compelled him to proclaim truth clearly. And we must do the same as we live in anticipation of his return. Return of the King. A.W. Tozer said this, that people who are crucified with Christ, dead to personal glory and ambition and to sin, have three distinct marks. They're facing one direction. They can never turn back. And they no longer have plans of their own. And let me know, and let me add this, they have the joy of knowing that Death no longer is the stronger. Hell itself is captive-led. That's the song that we sing. That's the joy that we have. And that's the joy we want to share with others. In the solemnity of that certainty of Christ's coming, we can say hope is on the way. Hope for all those who believe. Life to all who receive. This indeed is good news of great joy. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us, setting before us the truth of your Son's return. As the prophets of old declared that suddenly the Lord shall come into his temple, into his realm. So it's true as Christ came in public ministry, cleansing the temple. So he shall come again into his temple, the world, and establish himself as King of kings and Lord of lords for all to see. Indeed, he is now, Lord Jesus, you reign, seated at the right hand of the Father. Though not all recognize that, there is coming a day when it shall be evident and established undeniably. Lord, help us to listen and prepare for that. Help us to be teaching in our homes, to be giving thought to that, to be raising up boys and girls who have those hearts ready to receive him. That in this time where there is such hopelessness and despair, we might recognize it's because there is such a focus upon man and what he can do. We indeed need to look up to see what Christ has done, to know where we can find hope and joy. May we be those who are hopeful, joyful, 
sober about what is taking place, about how we take each step for the days are evil. Lord, help us to live in the light, the light of the truth concerning your Son, that we have been forgiven of our sins as we believe by the power of the Holy Spirit and now are being sanctified. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.